Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Obviously, we are watching what's going on in Ukraine. There are now reports, of course, that uh, the Russian offensive is underway and the Ukrainians will finally, finally, allegedly get fighter jets to be able to counter all of that. So that is something that we are keeping in mind. And joining us today to talk about really the big picture of the future of democracies and whether or not democracies have a future, Yasha Munk, who is the host of the Good Fight podcast, professor of the practice of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University, and author of a new book called The Great Experiment, why diverse democracies fall apart and how they can endure. So first of all, welcome to the podcast, Yasha. Thank you so much. You know, I'm trying to remember when I first met you back in 2017, there was a little bit of of a question of who had the darker view of what was going on. Usually it's me, but I think that you claimed that maybe you would be the pessimist uh, in the room. Do you remember this? out west on the the left coast. So what's striking to me is that this book takes an an optimistic tone after years and years and years of just awful, awful stuff. So how did you go from being kind of a, this is really bad, I am pessimistic, to, all right, this is why I am willing to be hopeful? Well, you know, I'm going to give you the classic answer, which is that I don't actually think my stance or my position has changed. I think everybody around me has changed a lot. So when I was starting to warn about the danger that populism poses to liberal democracies, this is at a time when the conventional wisdom held uh, that we really don't have to worry about the stability of American democracy, that there is a whole set of democracies in the world ones that have more than about $14,000 GDP per capita, ones that have had a couple of changes of government for free and fair elections, which will forever be stable. And we can fast forward history by 30 or 50 or 100 years, and there'll still be democracies. And so in that context, I was making the case, which I continue to strongly believe in, uh, that this new crop of authoritarian populists is really dangerous. Uh, They have succeeded in disabling democracy in Hungary. They they may be succeeding in doing so in India as we speak. And they came pretty damn close in the United States uh, during the presidency of of Donald Trump. Um, I think now, though, the conventional wisdom has switched to such an extent that people are saying, we're doomed whatever happens. There's a civil war brewing. We can't but fail. And I think that that is just as dangerous. And it's particularly dangerous on the topic which this book is about, which is how to make ethnic and religious diversity work. Now, there too, I'm sure we'll get into it, there's, yep. there's lots of reasons to, to think that this is a really hard undertaking. We're, we're doing something historically unprecedented, and it might very go, well go wrong, but we need an optimistic vision for the kind of society we would actually want to live in for this experiment to have a chance to succeed, and that's what I try to offer in this book. Okay, I think that's that's a solid answer because, uh, again, thinking back to 2017, 2018, it was still possible back then to think that the election of Trump was a one-off, it was a black swan event, and that we didn't really have a sense of the march of the populist nationalists throughout Europe, this, this global trend that the roots were much, much, much deeper than we thought. We probably also didn't have the full sense of the fragility of of democracy but but you're right now things have gotten very very dark so your your book is called the great experiment we are an experiment and you point out 
And I guess this, this is the part where I'm kind of almost wincing because the first half of your title is why diverse democracies fall apart. And what you're pointing out here is that most democracies in the history of the world have been very homogenous and have actually prided themselves on their ethnic purity. So in fact, it's not just that we're having an experiment in democracy. We are having a very fraught experiment in multicultural democracy. And so I, I guess the question is, has a multicultural democracy ever succeeded and endured? So I do think we're, we're doing something new. We can't point to a particular country and say, they made it work, we're just going to copy what happened there. Um, there's sort of two kinds of democracies that we've seen historically. Ones uh, that are very common in Western Europe, for example, that were quite ethnically and religiously homogeneous um, and that often uh, became stable after they had become more homogeneous because of the terrible expulsions and genocides of the first half of the 20th century. I mean, other democracies like the United States, which have, of course, always been diverse societies, but in which the relatively simple solution was to say, well, this one group gets all of the power, mm -hmm. they get to call the shots, and then the others are, are dominated and subjugated in terrible ways. So what we're trying to do now is to build a deeply ethnically and religiously diverse democracies that actually treat all of their members as equals. And uh, the name, The Great Experiment, from the book comes from before, but this is indeed a novel experiment in the kind of way in which founding fathers build a novel experiment in self-government at the end of the 18th century at a time when there was no historical precedent for how to make that succeed. But as you make it clear, this is not that same experiment. This is a much more radical experiment to build multi-ethnic, multi-religious democracies. And as you point out, you know, the ones, the democracies that have been highly diverse in, in the past are often based on uh, cruel and extreme forms of exclusion and domination. And you mentioned uh, slavery. So, so there is no precedent for exactly what we are doing right now. There's, as you point out, there's not an example that we can point to and say, let's copy that. No, that's not a good example to say, hey, they got it right. We can just, you know, follow the same playbook and everything's going to be fine. There are lots of bad examples, right? There's lots of reasons to think that this is going to be very difficult. So one reason comes from group psychology, comes from the fact that actually the instinct to form groups and to favor the members of the in-group over the out-group uh, goes really strong. And it appears even in the most unlikely scenarios. Um, you know, my students like to pride themselves in being the most tolerant people in the world, and in some ways perhaps they are. But when I ask them whether a hot dog is a sandwich <laughs> and then have them play a little game in which they can distribute benefits uh, to, to members of one group or another, they start to discriminate against each other on the basis of you know, the false belief that a hot dog is a sandwich or the false belief that a hot dog is not a sandwich. So this, this human groupishness kicks in really easily and really readily. And that's one deep problem that we face. The second is that you might think that democratic institutions help us deal with that problem, that they are the kind of kit which can avoid conflict and figure out compromises. But that often isn't the case. When you look at the most famous democracies in history, many of them prided themselves on their ethnic purity, from ancient Athens to Roman Republic to the city-states of medieval Italy. When you look at some of the most celebrated societies where diversity was sustained really successfully for at least a while, from Baghdad in the 9th century to Vienna in the 19th century, 
they were often empires or monarchies. And that's not a coincidence, because if you and I are living under a monarchy, the fact that you might have more kids or that there's more immigrants from, quote unquote, your group, doesn't necessarily scare me, because as long as I continue to trust a monarch, it doesn't influence my power. A democracy is always a search for majorities. So the kind of demographic panic we now see on big parts of the right um, actually comes relatively naturally in a democracy, because I have to win a majority. And if suddenly your group has more kids, there's more immigrants that look more like you than, than, than like me, that thought, oh my God, suddenly he is going to be in the majority and everything's going to change, comes relatively naturally. It is provoked in part by these democratic institutions. So let, let's go from the general to the specific, what's what's happening right now. We had the election in Hungary where the uh, autocrat Viktor Orban won um, rather easily. And we're about to have an election in France where uh, Marine Le Pen, uh, the far right candidate, was at least within striking distance of the French presidency. What you're describing is playing out in those countries right now, correct? Yeah, I think in particular what we're seeing in France, you know, where Marine Le Pen may win the presidency, probably Macron is going to get reelected. But even if he does, she is going to have the highest share of a vote of any far-right candidate in the history of, of the Fifth Republic, in, in the post-war history of France even. And I think one of the reasons for that is actually a deep pessimism about the current state of diverse democracies. So you get from the right this deep pessimism about what immigration and demographic change will do to a country like France, the idea that the immigrants who are coming in are supposed to somehow be inferior culturally or perhaps even biologically, that they're not succeeding for that reason, that they're not integrating, that they hate the values of mainstream society. And then there is a lot of the mainstream and on the left who don't agree with that attribution of blame. Uh, and we say, hang on a second, that uh, you know, obviously is bigoted and racist, but who then echo the pessimism by saying, no, 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 you know what? Uh, immigrants aren't succeeding and they are excluded from mainstream society and they are completely separate. But the reason for that is that discrimination and racism in the heart of society is so extreme that we don't have a chance to succeed. And so one of the things I try to do in the book is to obviously acknowledge the real discrimination and racism that exists in France, but also exists in the United States, without a doubt. Um, but to point out that this narrative actually is wrong, that it turns out uh, that the children, the grandchildren of immigrants to France uh, have a higher likelihood of uh, economic mobility, higher likelihood of educational mobility, than the children and grandchildren of similarly situated, uh, 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 quote-unquote, French kids. Um, and the same is true in the United States. But there's this far-right narrative that, you know, immigrants today from Mexico, El Salvador, or Vietnam aren't succeeding in the same way as Italian and Irish immigrants did 100 years ago. On the right, the, the reason for that uh, is claimed to be uh, that, there's some, that they're somehow less than. Um, on parts of the left, uh, the reason is sometimes said to be that uh, you know, today's non-white immigrants just don't have a chance to succeed in the same way that white immigrants did in the past. Uh, but actually, the best study on this by economists at, at Stanford and Princeton, looking at over a million data points, uh, suggests that uh, uh, progress is slow, but it's as rapid today as it was 100 years ago, that these immigrants from El Salvador and from Mexico and from Vietnam are doing as well as uh, immigrants from Italy and uh, Ireland did 100 years ago. And that uh, puts to rest any claim that they're somehow inferior, it also puts to rest the claim that injustice and discrimination is so extreme that we can't hack it, but we can't actually give immigrants a chance to succeed, uh, uh, that we uh, are building the sort of two-caste society. Thankfully, uh, that is not the case. So 
What about the backlash that we've seen here? In, in, let's go back to the, the United States. We, we had a presidential candidate elected on a very, very explicitly anti-immigrant platform against Mexican immigrants, suggesting that uh, we, we ban all Muslim immigrants. And that proved to be very, very potent. And then, of course, we're having this ongoing debate about race, which seems to be to have generated also rather fierce backlash and and the rise of of uh, of illiberal forces i would say on both the left and the right in fact i know that you uh, you are the uh, you know the founder of persuasion this uh, substack uh, magazine uh, and community for advocates of free speech and free inquiry and you know that's sort of one of these redoubts of l- small l liberalism and you write about uh, you know what's been happening in this country where it doesn't feel like there's a consistent forward line. It feels like there is a tremendous pushback going on right now with feelings being embittered. What, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way that I think about the current state of American society is that we're going through a kind of civil war of the elites. Uh, and the two sides in, in that civil war are increasingly illiberal in many ways. And they're incredibly polarized. They uh, hate each other. They have very little commonality. But I also think that in the heart of society, there's actually a lot more common sense that when you look at what the developments are in the middle of society, um, uh, it's, things are clearly better today than they were 50 or 25 years ago, especially on these questions of ethnic and religious diversity. So look, 30 or so years ago, a majority of Americans still thought that it was morally unacceptable for Americans of different ethnicities to intermarry. Mm-hmm. Um, that is now down to the single digits, thankfully. And this is not just sort of people telling pollsters something different because they don't want to seem bigoted. It is an actual change in behavior. So a few decades ago, the number of mixed-race babies was about 1 in 33. So the vast majority of newborns uh, had parents of the same race. Now uh, that is up to about 1 in 7 or 1 in 6, according to some statistics. So the actual way in which Americans engage with each other and intermingle Um, uh, has changed radically in these few decades. And by the way, we could say the same thing about public policy, right? When you look at Democrats and Republicans, they have nothing that they share. They have very few points of overlap. When you look at public opinion, there's often a consensus for pretty sensible positions Mm. on a whole set of issues. Most Americans have a positive view of immigration, but also want control over a border, for example. You know, most Americans acknowledge that deep racism exists in our society and think that we need serious reforms to policing in order to ensure that African-Americans are treated fairly by the police. They also want an effective police force, which can ensure public safety in the neighborhoods. And that obviously includes a clear majority of African-Americans who feel that way. So for me, the question is whether the political and, and cultural elite is going to be able to impose a civil war on the rest of society, which is absolutely a possibility and a scary one at that, or whether we will be able uh, to resist that imposition. That's a big question about the future of, of our society. So what I'm optimistic about is, uh, you know, the actual change in America in terms of our ability to to sustain, you know, real cultural commonalities and the way of living together across ethnic and religious boundaries, which I think is is much better now than it was in our recent past. But I do continue to be very concerned and, and pessimistic about the political level. I certainly am very worried about the 2024 election, the 2028 election, hmm. and what that might bring. 
So let's go back to this overall theme of your book um, about the great experiment. And you ask, of course, the question, you know, could this great experiment fail and argue that the 21st century is more dangerous for democracy in part because we're in a new era of naked power politics. I want to talk about that right after this. The weather is getting warmer and it's lighter later. You know what that means. It's time to take those cigars and drinks outside. Time to soak up the feeling and the flavor of cigar season. And when you're getting ready for cigar season, get the best premium cigars at the lowest prices at Famous Smoke Shop. And it's stress-free cigar shopping at Famous Smoke because every cigar is guaranteed fresh. Famous Smoke knows how to deliver the authentic cigar shop experience because it's been their family business for 83 years. They have decades of cigar knowledge and a huge selection of premium cigars. Famous Smoke Shop was even named the best place to buy cigars online by Cool Material and Cigar World. Famous Smoke Shop offers a huge selection of more than a thousand brands to choose from. You'll find incredible deals on everyday cigars and highly rated classics included Romeo, E. Giulietta, Monte Cristo, Macanudo, Oliva, and Fuente. So if you want your favorite cigars delivered fast and guaranteed fresh, it has to be Famous Smoke Shop. And, you know, when I got my cigars from Famous Smoke Shop, what I love was, first of all, how easy it was, but also the variety of cigars. Because, you know, you're not always in the mood for the same kind of cigar. And particularly this time of year, you might want to mix it up a bit, which I do pretty much every week. So here's your opportunity to save $10 off of your purchase of $50 or more when you go to famous-smoke.com. That's famous-smoke.com. And use code BULWARK10 at checkout to save $10 off your purchase of $50 or more. You'll get all of your favorite cigars delivered direct from their humidor to yours. That's promo code BULWARK10 for $10 off your purchase at famous-smoke.com. Great cigar deals only at famous-smoke.com. And remember to use promo code BULWARK and the number 10. Okay, I am back with Yasha Munku's new book, uh, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. One of the reasons why you are concerned about the, the great experiment failing in the 21st century is the new era of naked power politics. So talk about that. I think obviously anybody who's paying attention to what's going on in the world right now has a pretty good sense. But it certainly does feel that we have uh, we have shifted into uh, the kind of uh, power relationships that we really haven't seen, at least overtly in decades. So what is what is this new era of naked power politics? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's become obvious for a number of decades now that the illusion we once had that there's a liberal international order, which is stable, which is structuring international relations, and which will continue to dominate the world scene, was a case of wishful thinking. What we're actually seeing is democracies, which are in many ways becoming weakened, uh, which are retrenching as well as a, a resurgent crop of authoritarian leaders in, in China and Russia and elsewhere who are gaining the self-confidence to try and impose their will on the international scene. And so the question is how we're going to be able to contain their influence to ensure that countries like Ukraine can continue to be yeah. self-determining, that if you have a misfortune of uh, uh, living in a country that is close to an authoritarian great power, 
you don't have to be afraid of uh, being invaded uh, whenever the dictator uh, happens to make up his mind to do so. Now, I think that that is connected to the themes of the book, because one of the things that Vladimir Putin fought was that Ukraine was too linguistically divided hmm. to fight against him. One of the things he fought was that Western Europe and the United States were too decadent, in part because of their demographic change, to effectively come to the help of Ukraine. And so I think one of the things uh, that we'll have to do is to solve this problem of our ethnic and religious diversity in a successful way in order to be able to stand up to those dictators around the world. We need to muster the internal strength to win this fight over what the rules of the 21st century in the world are going to be. And that requires us mm -hmm. not being too fatalistic about the, the state of our own societies. So feel free to reject the premise of this question. There are moments in history where the worldview changes on a dime. December 7th, 1941, uh, you know, the attack on Pearl Harbor, 9-11, uh, uh, everything changed in one day. But usually it takes a much longer time for people to adjust to the new reality. And we have lived in a world order for the last 50, 60, 70 years that is disappearing. And as I'm watching the West's reaction to Ukraine, it seems like they're coming around. They are changing their view. They recognize that, okay, that world in which we were going to coexist you know, peacefully with, with Russia may not be over. Uh, many of the things that we had assumed turned out to be wish casting. So are you seeing this? I mean, this is something I know that you watch very carefully. Are you seeing uh, this evolution and this rethinking um, in places like Germany? And does it just take a time to do this? to kind of come to grips with the fact that the world of today is nothing like the world that we thought it was say, three months ago? Well, I would say that there's a competition here between two different forces. On the one hand, there is the slow-sinking realization uh, that the world is not as it was. The way I put this about Western Europe and Germany in particular is that these countries have enjoyed a kind of holiday from history, which was granted in many mm -hmm. ways by the United States, which mm -hmm. is to say that they thought, you know, the United States is going to protect us against any kind of security threats uh, within Western Europe. Um, you know, we're surrounded by peaceful neighbors. Um, so, you know, we can go and enjoy the sun on the beach and not worry too much about the world around us. Well, eventually the, the last day of a holiday comes and the sun has set and it's getting pretty cold out on the beach. And there we all are pretending that we can just stay out there and keep partying. And the next day is going to be like the day before. And that's no longer been the case for a long time. But now a huge storm is brewing and, you know, we're starting to see the flashlights yeah. close in on us. Now, that creates a shock. And then the first reaction might be uh, to actually say, oh, no, we, we need to change. We need to adapt. We actually need to um, uh, uh, think through the consequences of this. And there was a speech by the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, which sounded as though he was doing that, which promised, for example, greater military spending in Germany, uh, as well as uh, a few measures to help Ukraine. But there's also a second temptation, which is uh, to go even deeper into denial, to say uh, after the first initial shock, oh, well, you know, I mean, yeah, there's a storm brewing, but it's not going to be so bad, you know. Let's just take shelter and wait it out. Right. And everything will go back to normal, and tomorrow the sun will rise again, and we'll be able to, to go and sit on the beach again. And, you no, know, I was quite skeptical of applauded that Germany got for that speech by Scholz a couple of months ago. There was a, an article in my magazine, The Atlantic, which is a wonderful magazine, saying, 
The Sleeping Giant Awakens. I thought that was premature. <laughs> Uh, and I think it has proven to be premature because actually uh, Germany is continuing to import gas from Russia and still has no real plans uh, to wean itself off that dependency. It is uh, uh, doing the least of uh, any major uh, Western nation in terms of actually helping and equipping Ukraine with weapons or other forms of material assistance. Um, there are still politicians in high office in Germany who have deep ties to Putin and the Kremlin and uh, Russian uh, gas firms uh, and so on. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that instead of uh, a creeping readjustment to the new mm -hmm. reality, uh, we have a creeping back in of denial. Interesting. Let's talk about patriotism and in, in your discussion of this, uh, you know, patriotism versus sort of raw nationalism. Uh, they're often, they're often confused, but you had a, you had an excerpt of your book uh, in the Wall Street Journal and, you know, and, and you talked about why patriotism can be good for democracies. Why? Yeah, well, so first of all, we're seeing in Ukraine that patriotism can be a force for good, um, that there's millions of people who are risking their lives voluntarily, by the way, um, to fight against uh, the Russian invasion because they believe in their country being self-determined. Um, that 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 is one of the effects of patriotism. Um, I, I I was reading a lot of George Orwell as I was writing this book, and um, you know he risked his own life uh, on the side of the Spanish Republic against the fascists, and then a few years later, at the height of World War II, did something which might seem paradoxical, which is to sit down and write an essay in defense of patriotism. And the reason for that is that he said. Had British intellectuals succeeded in the mission of ridding the British population of patriotism in the years leading up to World War II, um, we would not have withstood the blitz. Um, the, the men of the SS might now be marching and patrolling in the street of London. Um, so, um, you know, patriotism can be this positive thing which gives us an allegiance to something that's beyond ourselves, beyond our family, beyond our co-ethnics, beyond the members of our own religion. We've also seen in the last few decades how dangerous it is when we leave the symbolism of a nation to the worst kinds of people, when we allow people like Trump or uh, like Orban or like Modi or like uh, Putin, for that matter, to monopolize the symbols of, of the nation. Um, and so I think of patriotism and nationalism as a kind of half-domesticated beast, a half-domesticated animal, which will always remain somewhat dangerous. Um, especially when it's stoked and provoked by the worst people. Um, and what we have to do is to try and domesticate it and make it useful for us. Now, the question then becomes, what, what kind of form should that patriotism take, right? Yes. And there's three traditional answers that have been given to that. Uh, the first is a kind of ethnic nationalism. So the first is an idea which essentially says, you know, to be a true uh, Frenchman, let's say, you have to have grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents that were already French, that already descended uh, from the same kind of lineage. Now, that I obviously reject because I don't see that as having any real normative significance. I don't see why I should care about that kind of ethnic kinship. I think that makes it much easier to uh, justify wars. If you're saying that there's something superior about my ethnic group, that seemingly gives you justification to come into conflict with other ethnic groups, even if they have the same ideas. And by the way, it's, it's just empirically uh, unappealing. Um, most uh, Frenchmen now, most Germans, obviously most Americans recognize that there are many true members of a nation 
many true Frenchmen and true Germans, true Americans who have a different skin color, who have a different cultural or national origin. So ethnic nationalism doesn't describe our reality well either. So the second kind of conception, which philosophers have uh, historically uh, appealed to, uh, and which I imagine you find appealing, and I myself find very appealing, is civic patriotism. Mm -hmm. It's to say, well, what is it to be an American in particular? It is to love the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights and to base our love of country in the set of political values. Now, I think that's very important because it uh, is a way of ensuring that you don't turn uh, your patriotism into blind nationalism. Uh, that is rooted in values. It's the reason why the brave people in Russia who have been protesting this war over the last two months at great risk to themselves are true patriots when they're saying, not mm -hmm. in my name, not in the name of our nation. Uh, and when I became a U.S. citizen five years ago now, you know, I was proud to swear to uh, defend the U.S. Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and that was a form of patriotism uh, uh, for me. But I actually think that civic patriotism uh, is 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 not sufficient. And the reason for that is quite simple, that most people don't care all that much about politics. Mm -hmm. When most people say, I love America, they're not actually thinking about the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, and they probably can't tell you what's in the Eighth Amendment. Um, and so uh, I think we should add a third conception, which is a cultural patriotism. Um, and what I mean by that is not something that harkens back to uh, a long-ago past and uh, you know, celebrates the Mayflower and all of those things. That can play some part mm -hmm. in it too. But it is primarily a celebration of the dynamic, changing, naturally diverse, everyday culture uh, that actually unites us as Americans today. Uh, when people say they love their country, they mean that they love its cities and landscapes, its sights and sounds and smells, its uh, cultural scripts, its, its ways uh, of facilitating our interactions of how we deal with each other, its celebrities, its TikTok stars. And that kind of cultural patriotism directed towards the future is, is what actually for me defines countries. It's what makes the United States very different from the United Kingdom, very different from Australia, very different from Germany. Um, it's something that can integrate people from a lot of different ethnic and cultural backgrounds. And I think it's something that's actually much stronger than Americans often realize and recognize. And so we should add this form of cultural patriotism to our civic patriotism as part of our repertoire of what it means to, to love your country in a healthy way. Well, I agree with you, um, but you're describing loving the actual country, the country uh, as it actually exists, your real countrymen. But of course, you, you could turn that just, you know, a few dials and the people who say that, you know, I'm a cultural patriot, they will define the culture as, you know, the way that it used to be, that it, this will be a, you know, white Protestant uh, ethnic culture. I am struck by the number of patriots out there that really seem to hate the actual country, who really dislike their actual countrymen, but have this mythical sense of what American culture is. And they're prepared to fight and die and defend that even though it doesn't exist, and it is exactly the kind of exclusionary culture that you described earlier in our discussion. Yeah, and so I think, look, on you know, that's why for me, patriotism is this half-domesticated animal. There's always yeah. going to be this dark side to it, and people are always going to try and weaponize that dark side of it. Um, and that certainly exists in this, in this realm, too. Um, but, you know, when you think about how most Americans actually feel, you know, most Americans have some amount of nostalgia. There's a simple reason why people have nostalgia in politics, which is that, you know, the past is better for most people, you know, especially as you're getting a little bit older. I'm going to turn 40 uh, later this year. 
you know, you think, well, 20 years ago, things were kind of better because I was younger and having more fun, you know? <laughs> um, so, so nostalgia is always going to be powerful. People are always going to say, oh, why weren't things better 20 years ago? There's always going to be an element of that. But I actually think that most Americans like and recognize the changing culture and recognize the cultural contributions that immigrants are making to their country, like the dynamism of American life. Um, and like the, the natural mix of cultures that it uh, represents. You know, I love a song like Old Town Road um, because it draws on all of these different musical genres in a way that is uniquely American. And that's one way, by the way, why I'm very skeptical of uh, critics of cultural appropriation. Um, there are some instances in which people use the term cultural appropriation to describe things that really are unjust. But what makes these things unjust is usually something much more uh, straightforward and much more easy. And uh, we should be very careful about putting uh, forms of mutual cultural influence under a general pole of suspicion, because that is a lot of what uh, builds American culture as it is today and a lot of what makes people love their country today. So let's talk about why, why you are hopeful. When you talk with the Daily Beast about your book, you said you're pessimistic about our politics when, when you turn on cable news. I can certainly understand anybody that turns on news for half an hour is uh, not going to be feeling very, very good about where we're at. But you said you're optimistic about what you're seeing with diversity on the ground. Is this what you're you've been talking about, though, the fact that that, you know, once people step away from the partisan polarization, they you know step away from the 24 seven punditry, they're actually much more accepting of diversity and this uh, this culture you're describing? Yeah. So when you look at uh, any opinion poll, you see that America has become much more tolerant over the last decades. When you look at socioeconomic data, you see uh, real socioeconomic progress for uh, every demographic group in the United States over the last decades. When you look at uh, the number of friendships people have across cultural boundaries and ethnic boundaries, the number of relationships they have across those boundaries, you see just a lot more intermixing, a lot less segregation in, in the heart of American society. And all of those, I think, are underheralded and really important developments. And, and let me tell you one more thing, which is perhaps at the intersection of culture and politics, which is that I write about what I think of as the most dangerous idea in American politics, but both a lot of Democrats and a lot of Republicans agree on. Now, Democrats and Republicans, mm. liberals and conservatives don't agree on anything today, right? right. And you'd think that that'd be heartened like by it. the fact that they can at least agree on one thing. But it turns out that the one thing they agree on is, you know, a really ambitious theory about the future of a country, which is empirically ungrounded and politically dangerous. And, and that is this idea uh, that we can think of America as just being split into these two neat blocks, whites on one side and people of color on the other side. And that uh, politically, because whites are more likely to vote for the Republican Party and uh, people of color are more likely to vote for the Democratic Party uh, and whites are declining as a share of the overall population, uh, this is going to mean that Democrats are always going to win in, in the future and that the country will be what's called majority-minority by around 2045 or perhaps yeah. 2048 and so on. Right? I think every piece of this is basically wrong. Hmm. Politically, it is wrong and dangerous because we see how it's driving the panic on the right. People like Michael Anton, who are saying that, I quote, the ceaseless importation of third world foreigners, end quote, is destroying the country and destroying the any Republicans have of winning. Yeah. And so therefore, you've got to go and vote for Trump because he's the one man who might stop it, even though he might not 
know what he's doing, right? So his drivers kind of panic. It drives a lot of triumphalism on the left, where people are saying, no matter that we are unpopular, you know, no matter that some of our policies are really toxic in, in the general population, we just have to mobilize our base and we'll be able to win. And that's right. how we end up losing to Donald Trump. So, so, so it's really wrong on that count as well. But it's also empirically wrong, as we saw in the 2020 election, right? The only reason why Donald Trump was competitive in that election is that he significantly gained share of the vote among every non-white voter group, including African-Americans, including Asian-Americans, and including especially Latinos. And the only reason why Joe Biden is the legitimately elected 46th president of the United States is that he significantly improved the Democratic Party's performance among white voters relative to four years earlier. But, you know, going even further mm-hmm. than that, I think it's just culturally wrong. It is culturally wrong today to think of America as being split into these two fundamentally mutually opposed blocks. Uh, you know, whites are a much more complicated demographic category than that implies with deep internal disagreements and uh, divisions. Um, and people of color um, have very deep internal disagreements and, and, and divisions. I mean, the idea that, let's say, somebody who is, uh, you know, half descended of uh, French royal stock and half descended of an Indian Brahmin family that has been at the top of Indian society for 3,000 years, who's born in the United States, is somehow naturally in the same category as somebody who's descended, uh, uh, you know, on all sides of a family uh, by people who've been enslaved for centuries and then suffered the indignities of Jim Crow, and they're both somehow in the same way people of color. I think that's just a very, very bizarre way of thinking about reality. And as you can see from the self-descriptions of many Latinos who actually think of themselves as white uh, and who increasingly vote for the Republican Party, it's not one that's grounded in sociological reality. And so, you know, I don't want to live in a country in which I can walk down the street and know who you're voting for by looking at the color of your skin, even though I obviously prefer the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, given the current state of our politics. I do not want to live in a country where the Democratic Party ekes out a victory along demographic lines, election after election, but 47% 47 of the population feel really uh, uh, displaced and angry um, and, uh, by the way, have a lot of guns. Uh, None of this is is an attractive vision of a kind of society we should want to live in. And so that's that's why I think this is the most dangerous idea in American politics. And yet deeply, deeply ingrained. Uh, Yasha Monk, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, The book is The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. Uh, You can uh, also read Yasha's work. Uh, He's a contributing writer at The Atlantic, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, founder of the journal Persuasion, uh, the Substack magazine and community for advocates of free speech. And because you're a busy guy, host of the Good Fight podcast. Well, Yasha, thank you so much for coming on this podcast today. Thank you so much, Charlie. And thank you for joining me here each weekday. And also, I want to give a shout out to our Bulwark Plus members who helped to underwrite this show and keep everything we do at the Bulwark sustainable. You might think that a Bulwark Plus membership is all about our newsletters like my daily morning shots, but really, Bulwark Plus membership is about a lot more than that. We're building a community of independent-minded, concerned patriots who value democracy and the truth. We make most of what we do free and accessible by everybody because you can't help save democracy from behind a paywall, but... 
we do have some great member-only benefits that I'd like to share with you. Because in addition to our newsletters, members have commenting privileges and also have access to ad-free versions of this show and all of the podcasts in the Bulwark Network, like Sarah Longwell's Focus Group Podcast and Mona Charon's show, Beg to Differ. And there's the Thursday Night Bulwark, a live video broadcast that we host for members each week on Zoom. You can give Bulwark Plus membership a try for the next 30 days for free. Simply go to thebulwark.com slash charlie to claim your free trial today. That's thebulwark.com slash charlie. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow to do this all over again.